If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to John chapter 1 through 26? If you're using one of the red Story Church Bibles, John chapter 4 is on page 518. John chapter 4, um, Jesus is, um, uh, like he likes to do, walking around and talking to people. Um, and then we're going to look at an interaction that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman and um, look at what they talk about. So would you follow along as I read John chapter 1, sorry, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and uh, baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Jacob's Well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all of his livestock. Jesus said to her, of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you use. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our This morning, like I said, we are beginning um, a brief series until Advent on Christ-centered worship. And we're looking at what is it that we do when we gather together here on Sunday. Uh, worship, just in general, is ascribing worth and value and adoration upon God for who he is and what he has done. Chiefly, we ascribe that worth and value and honor to him because he has brought about our redemption uh, by the precious blood of his son. And it's been applied to us by the power of the spirit. We have been saved by God and our response is to worship him because of that. Um, And so, you know, even in the passage we read in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus says true worship is to the Father. Yes, it is to the Father, but it's properly to the Father for what he has done for us through Christ. Uh, And so true worship to the Father for what he has done to us through Christ. Now, upon hearing that we're talking about worship, what might be going through your head, uh, which often goes through my head, is um, questions like, all right, Jeremy, tell us, is, is worship, you know, is, is worship supposed to be structured or is worship supposed to be free-flowing? You know, is worship supposed to be traditional or is worship supposed to be relevant for today? Is worship supposed to be dignified and buttoned up uh, or is worship to be joyful and joyous and, you know, overflowing? Is it supposed to be emotional, flowing out of our hearts or is it to be cognitive so that we're learning about who God is? Is worship supposed to be historic, rooted in the past and the church fathers, or is it to be contextual, you know, drawing in influences from today? Jeremy, tell me, what is true worship? I want to know the answer. And I'm sorry, my intention is not to solve. Christ-centered worship has all of those included, right? No, I I think that we need to actually ask the kind of question that this woman in Samaria is asking. Because her question is, all right, God, or all right, Jesus, you you are a prophet. You speak on behalf of God. Um, We have been worshiping like this, and I know that you guys worship like that, but tell me, how does God want us to worship him? That's her question. We worship over here like this. You guys worship over there like that. But tell me, how does God want to be worshipped? And his answer, as we've said, that true worship is Christ-centered worship. And Christ is what produces true worshipers, who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage, and I'm going to show you um, that because True worship is Christ. True worship, therefore, we should worship, one, with a sense of longing. Two, we should worship with a sense of expectation. Three, we should worship with a sense of intimacy. 
And then fourth and finally, we should worship as an overflow of the gospel. So I'm going to walk through those with you this morning. First, we should worship with a sense of longing. In the conversation that Jesus has about worship, it comes on the back end of this larger conversation that Jesus is having about water. And some might think that these are two unrelated conversations, but I think they're vitally linked to each other. Uh, I, I love how Jesus um, takes the conversation about water and, uh, you know, Jesus kind of, Jesus jukes her. Uh, you want some water? Well, I'll give you living water. You try that next time you're at work around the water, uh, watering hole, you know. Are uh, you thirsty? Can I tell you about uh, Jesus? You'll, you'll never be thirsty again. Uh, Jesus, that will quench your thirst forever. Can I tell you about who I am? That, that's what he's doing. He's unveiling this reality that uh, there are two kinds of thirst. You know, this woman is materially thirsty. She's, um, she wants water. Jesus wants water. He's tired from walking in the middle of the day out in the wilderness. He's tired. He's thirsty. But there's a spiritual thirst that he's getting at, a, a thirst in our souls for living water. And she doesn't get it. You know, she says, w w you don't have a pail. How are you going to give me that living water? And so Jesus digs in a little bit more to reveal that spiritual thirst. He says, go and call your husband and then come back to me. And her response is, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. You, you have had five husbands, and the person that you're with now is not your husband. What's he doing? What is he showing her in this comment? A deep soul thirst. That, that there's this deep longing within her. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, she's, she's probably longing for companionship. She has had relationship after relationship after relationship, and... Um, even now, the person that she's with, she's, she's even unwilling to covenant to him. He, he's not her husband, but she longs for companionship. I mean, she's even willing to skirt social and religious and cultural standards out of this longing for companionship. She's also probably longing for healing. We don't know her story, but the fact that she has had five husbands most likely means some of those husbands have passed away. Like, she has been deeply hurt by the loss of her spouse. She's also probably longing for acceptance. She has gone from husband to husband, and she's hid socially from community. We, we don't, again, we don't know everything about her. We don't know why this has all happened, but she's longing for companionship, for healing, for acceptance. Whatever it is, what is certain about this interaction is that she is longing for something. She is thirsty for a spiritual satisfaction, for a spiritual satiation. She is in need of the living water that Jesus wants to give her. And it's in the middle of feeling the weight of that need that then she brings up the question about worship. And I think that's instructive for us, that when we worship we should be thinking about our neediness. Like we should be worshiping with a sense, an awareness of our deep longing, our awareness of a spiritual thirst within us, an awareness that we need Jesus and what he offers us. 
We need to be aware of how he meets those needs, our spiritual needs. Remember, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He's saying that those of you who come uh, with an awareness of your spiritual hunger, those of you who come to me with awareness of your spiritual thirst, with your, with your longings, when you come to me with your spiritual emptiness, that is when you're blessed. Like when you come to worship and aware of your deep need for him, that is when he provides himself to us. We should worship with a sense of longing for Jesus. I love how Jesus uses the illustration of water to point this out. Um, how many of you have ever, you know, after a long day of working, maybe in the yard, mowing the grass, like all you ever want is a tall glass of ice water. When I was younger uh, in high school, I had a lawn mowing um, job is too much of a word for it. I, there was a house down the street, family friends. Uh, it was too small for a riding lawn mower, but it was too big for uh, an easy job. And uh, halfway through, when I was getting really sweaty and tired, uh, they would put out like a pitcher of ice water with sliced lemons, and I would just see it as I'd go back and forth. And, ah, man, I wanted to stop and take a break. I was so thirsty. But I knew that if I stopped in the middle of my job and go sat on the patio with a cup of water, I'd kick my feet up, I'd relax, I'd rest, and then my muscles would be like, no, you're done. There's no way you're getting back up to finish the job. And so I'd push through, I'd work hard, I'd get it done, and then I'd do it. I'd take that cup of water and I'd rest and get so relaxed and refreshed. It was when I was most thirsty and most need of rest that I'd kick back and enjoy that water. You might know that feeling. Maybe not for water. Maybe you've had a long day at work. Uh, You've had plenty of interactions in the office that you weren't looking all day making a mess of the house. You are exhausted. Your energy is depleted. And you get home. The day's done. What do you want to do? Like, you want to kick back, put your feet up on the couch with a drink in your hand and a show on TV or a good, bur- a good book. You want rest. That's what you're longing for in that moment, right? Jesus is saying that, that we have a longing for spiritual water because that is what will give us rest. That's what our hearts need. And so we should worship with a sense of longing for Jesus to come worshiping with a recognition that our hearts are longing for this chance to rest in him. What St. Augustine said, like at the beginning of his famous book, Confessions, he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Friends, we are restless until we find rest. Hearts until we find what we are looking for in Christ. So we should come and worship with that longing. What does that look like? What does that look like for us to come and worship with a sense of longing for Jesus? Well, I think we need to process what it is that we're longing for. Like maybe life is so filled with anxiety right now. And in chaotic schedule, you're going left, right, and center. You're being stretched so thin. What you need is rest. Like, yes, physical rest, emotional rest, spiritual rest. 
you know, in our political world. We're filled with confusion about the world and politics and wars and what's true and what's right. What's the right way to go? What we need is truth. What we need is clarity. And so come longing for that from him. Maybe you come this morning feeling shame or guilt from sin. So come longing now, uncertainty and unknowing of what is around the corner. Come and find peace. So the first step of coming with longing is understanding what is it that I need right now? And then coming and asking for help. Above all, we need to come recognizing our need for the gospel, our need for salvation. Like We need to recognize every week that we are depending so much on ourselves and our own righteousness, our own morality, our own good works, as if those things made us worthy and acceptable to God. We need to remember when we come to worship, we're not saying, here am I, I'm so good. No, we need to come and say, I'm nothing. I need you. I'm longing for you. We need your grace, God. And then I think we need, to, we need to understand what does it mean to need something versus wanting something. I remember as a kid flipping through toy catalogs around Christmas time. It's still true today. My kids are doing this. They say, Dad, I need this. Oh my gosh, Dad, I need that. I need those things. I think sometimes we think that worship is one of those things that we want. We need to recognize worship is one of those things that we need because it's here in God's presence with God's people under God's word that our longings are met. I think sometimes we think it's, it would be convenient to go to worship, to go to church. Sometimes it's hard to go to church and maybe it's too hard and so I'm not going to go. No, we need this. Like, our souls need this. Not, not this, not these chairs, not this music, not me. We need the presence of God with the people of God under the word of God. That's what we need. So let's come and worship with a sense of our longing. But secondly, we see in this passage, we need to come and worship with a sense of expectation. So this Samaritan woman asks Jesus, since, since you know all things, or should we be worshiping here on Mount Gerizim in, in Samaria? Those are the two options. And the Samaritans, um, they didn't have the full Old Testament. They just believed in the first five books. And their understanding was that Moses uh, was encouraging them to set up altars where God spoke to them. And um, in Deuteronomy, they're instructed to go to Mount Gerizim and to speak the word of God from one side of the valley to the other. And so they set up an altar, and then actually they set up a, a temple there. Uh, but the Jews, who weren't Samaritans, they understood that actually, no, God had told King David to set up the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. So you had these two competing ideas. Are we to worship over here, or are we to worship over here? That's the question. Where is God? Is God in Jerusalem or is God in Samaria? Where do we worship God? That's her question. And Jesus responds in verse 21 saying, Woman, this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying there is a time coming. The hour is coming, which in the Gospel of John always refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The hour is coming 
uh, when I will do something that will radically change the way we worship. And in light of what I am going to do, Jesus says, in light of all that I am and all that I will accomplish, you will no longer have to worship here or there. Why? Because after what I do, God will no longer be tied down, in a sense, to a specific and particular location. Rather, because God is spirit, you will worship him by the Holy Spirit, wherever you are. In other words, Jesus is saying the presence of God, the place where you go and come and encounter and experience God, that place where you see his glory, where you hear his word, it rather wherever the Spirit of God is, that is where you can expect to encounter him. This was a radically new idea for people to hear. God would no longer be tied down to one place, but that he could be encountered anywhere. This was unheard of. But I think this explains why uh, Jesus in John 16 says that it is for our benefit that he's going to leave us and go to heaven. Because he says, it's for my benefit that I will leave you. It's for your benefit I will leave you. Because when I leave you, I will send my spirit upon you. And my spirit will be with you. My spirit will be among you. Why is it better not to have Jesus? That doesn't make sense. It's better not to have Jesus because Jesus, in his flesh, was tied to a specific place. Jesus says, it's better that I leave because now you can have the Spirit and can experience me wherever. We'll gather together in his name. He promises to be with us. Not physically, but spiritually and really. Jesus is promising to be with us. So we should expect him to be here. It's like he's giving us an RSVP. I will be there. I promise. Nothing else is more important to me than to be with you. He's not a millennial. He doesn't RSVP and then flake out because something better comes around. No, he promises to be with us when we come together in his name. It's like those romantic comedies, the ones where the people plan to meet together at a certain place at a certain time, and they know it's real love if, if they see each other. Jesus says... I will be there when you get together with my people in my name to worship me for what I have done. I will be there waiting for you. You can expect me to be there. Always feel his presence. Like, it sometimes feels like, yes, there was an RSVP, and think back when you were maybe dating your spouse, and you went to dinner early on, and you really hoping that she's going to show up, and you tell the waiter you had a table for two, and you go and sit down, and you order two drinks, and you check your clock, and it's been five minutes, ten minutes, and they stood you up. Sometimes it feels like that on Sunday. Jesus, I thought you were going to be there, but I'm disappointed. I feel left out, hung out to dry. Can we be honest? Sometimes worship feels like that. Sometimes it feels one-sided, disappointing, like a letdown. I, I get it. So in the midst of those feelings, how then 
do we do this? How, how do we worship with an expectation that he will be here? I think we need to know we ought to come with a sense of longing and our need for him. And then we need to recognize we do not control the spirit. We cannot manufacture a spiritual experience. We can't cultivate um, one of those mountaintop emotional experiences. We can't. But what can we do? We can prepare. We can prepare to meet him here so that when the spirit moves, we experience it. I love the story in the Old Testament of the prophet Elijah, who has this um, God competition with the prophets of Baal. Like there's this, I mean, it's a competition. They say, hey, my God is the real God. No, my God is the real God. And they set up this competition. They set up two altars. They bring the wood, the sacrifice, they prepare it. And the prophets Baal, they say, all right, God, come down. And they sing and they dance and they march around and they do all these rituals. And they're like, I'm going to pour water on my altar just to make it impossible for me to do anything. And I'm going to say, Yahweh, the one true living God, come and accept my worship. And what happens? The fire comes down. It wasn't because Elijah did anything. No, all he did was prepare. And then the Spirit of God showed up. We should come and worship with a sense of expectation that the Spirit will move. We can't manufacture that, but we can prepare for it. What does that look like? I, I love, I'm going to butcher the phrase, but Sunday morning worship begins on Saturday night. Like what I mean by that is, how are you preparing to come here before coming here? Uh, what do you need to put into place Saturday so that Sunday is a day of worship? Um, you know, I've got a family. I know that getting ready for church is hard. I mean, so we try to make sure, hey, clothes are laid out, breakfast is ready to go, everything that we need for Sunday is ready on Saturday night so that we're prepared to come and experience God. That's not just logistics. Like, we should be preparing our heart. Like, as you come in to worship, I know that Monday's coming. I know that you've got meetings and appointments and schedules and worries and fears and anxieties. So come into worship with a sense of, all right, God, I need to prepare my heart for what you want to do here. And take away the uncertainty, take away the fear, the anxiety, the concerns of life and work. I need to prepare my heart. I need to quiet my soul. Maybe preparation means learning the songs that we sing at Story Church. You know, God promises in uh, Psalm 22 that he inhabits the praises of his people. A Spotify playlist that's freely available to all of you that has all the songs that we sing. I'm, I'm going to try every week to put out the four or five songs that we're singing earlier in the week. I would love for you and your family to prepare to sing praises of the Lord so that, you know, it's great that Rob's introducing new songs every once in a while. Let's, let's learn those together. And let's make those songs, the words of those songs, bury deep into our hearts. Maybe around family dinner, family worship, you're learning those songs. Learning a hymn, 
you know, those are harder to learn uh, if they're new to you. Take it slowly. Learn one stanza at a time. Be ready to worship. Be ready to hear the word preached. You know, we're in the series, so I'm all over the place now, but January 1st, we're coming back to Matthew. I'm going to pick right where I left off, Matthew 8. We're going to be going chapter by chapter. Read along with us and include that in your daily reading so that you come knowing God's word, ready to hear it, ready for him to speak to us. We need to come with our prayers, come with our burdens, come prepared. Come with our mindset that says, God, I know that you are here. I know that you are speaking. I know that you are working. I want to be open and ready and humble and teachable to encounter you now. We should come and worship with a sense of expectation that we will meet Jesus here, that he will do something to us. All right. Third, right. I'm going to go quick. All right. Third, we need to worship with a sense of intimacy. Jesus goes on to say to this woman that they've been worshiping what they do not know, and the Samaritans didn't have the full Old Testament Bible. They didn't have God's revelation of who he was. But he says, we, the Jews, we do worship what we know. Like God has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures. You know, and he says salvation is from the Jews, meaning not that the Jews were better, but that God chose to reveal salvation to the Jewish people in their history, through their tradition, how God is bringing about the salvation of the world. So there, there is a sense in which true worship, as Jesus is talking about, is tied to God's own revelation of himself through his word. So the Maritans, Samaritans did not know the God that they were trying to worship, but the Jews did because God revealed himself to them. Put another way, you cannot worship truly without knowing truly who it is that we're worshiping. And, and so he says, the hour is coming, again, a reference to his death, his resurrection, and is already here, meaning it's not just my actions on the cross, but my very person, Jesus himself. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying that God, who has been revealing himself to his people, has now in an ultimate and a final way, is revealing himself most fully in me. And because he is revealing himself in me, true worship is now found through me through a relationship with me, through being connected to me, through being united to me, being close to me, abiding with me. True worship is seeking to grow and strengthening that deep and intimate relationship with Jesus. It's understanding who he is, what he has done, knowing about him, knowing his words, cultivating affections for him, growing in love for him. And I use that word intimate precisely because it is a relationship that involves our heads and our hearts, knowing who he is, having affections for who he is, like every good relationship includes. So worship, coming to worship is an opportunity to cultivate, to strengthen, to grow that intimate relationship, to learn and hear about and sing about and pray about who he is, what he's like, what he's done to experience his love, to experience his forgiveness, to experience his compassion. Worship is an intimate 
encounter. All right, quickly. Worship, lastly, finally, in conclusion, worship, not only should we come with longing, sense of expectation, uh, not only should it be an opportunity to grow our intimate relationship with him, worship that is Christ-centered, that is true worship, is an overflow of experiencing the gospel ourselves. Right? Jesus is saying here, I am about to radically transform worship. Who I am and what I'm about to do will radically change how you worship, who you worship, where you worship. The gospel makes us into true worshipers. That's what he's saying. And so worship then is an overflow of experiencing what Jesus has done. It's, it's to the Father who has sent us his Son to die for us and redeem us and is applying that salvation by the Spirit. True worship is to the Father in spirit and truth, by the Holy Spirit, and in accordance with the truth of who Jesus is. Friends, that, that's the good news of the gospel. Like, we were made to worship the Father. That's how God designed us. And because of our rebellion and our sin, our self-centeredness, we have not given Him the glory, we've given it to ourselves. We haven't ascribed worship to Him. We want ourselves to be worshipped. We turn away from Him. And that's created this chasm, this brokenness, this fracturing in all the created order. We feel that. But God in His love has sent us His Son who perfectly worshiped the Father, who perfectly was filled with the Spirit, who was the embodiment of truth itself. He is the Word made flesh. And by the Spirit that indwells us through faith, we are united to Him. We're made alive in Him. We're regenerated as a new creation to worship Him. That's the gospel, friends. The gospel... It, 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 it empowers us to be true worshipers. Um, so that when we come together now, it is a joyous celebration of the gospel. And so we sing about the gospel. We pray about the gospel. We hear the gospel spoken over us. We read the gospel. We even see the gospel in baptism. We taste the gospel in communion. Guys, it's all about the gospel. When we come and worship, it should be out of an overflow of experiencing the gospel. Let's, let's pray.